let's go fly a kite up to the highest height. Let's go fly a kite and send it so. Hi, this is Cole Moon, and welcome to the Holiday Moons podcast, where we share our love for the holidays with you year-round. This is Beth, and I'm going to be talking about thunderstorms. This is Randy, and I will be talking about flying kites. This is Sydney, and I will be talking about the cherry blossoms in D.C. As you can tell from our topics, it's a very spring-focused episode. That's right. Today, in fact, was the first day of daylight savings time when we spring ahead and lose an hour of sleep, but we move daylight later in the day. So Which that's is nice. nice. Yeah, that's I wish nice. we could just stay like this the whole year. Well, in fact, it's funny you say that, but there are individual states that are now putting in legislation to keep it one way or the other the whole year. Some states want to keep it uh, regular time, and some want to keep it daylight savings time. So I was actually reading a little article. The problem with keeping it on regular time is that it shifts the hours so much that there's not as much morning daylight. Like, morning daylight really kind of gets pushed out of the way. So, oh, that's yeah. too bad. The other thing was that March started, and it actually was supposed to come in like a lion and leave like a lamb, because that's the expression. Right, in like a lion, out like a lamb. Right, but it came in like a lamb. It did. It's lambing it up all over the place. (laughs) It really is. It really is. It was interesting. When I was a kid, I remember the expression differently. I remember it as a question mark. Like, if it comes in like a lamb, it'll leave as a lion. Oh, okay. If it comes in like a lion, it'll leave like a lamb. I did some research on it in looking that up, thinking about it last week. And it's not supposed to be like a either or. The expression is it comes in like a lion and leaves like the lamb. Yeah. 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 But I looked online and other people had the same issue. So somebody along the, the way. Same question? Yes. Yeah, somewhere along the way, it switched around to be more of an either or. That's think, funny. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Last week... One of the days was actually Oreo Day. That's right. And I went to Target recently. They have all their Easter stuff up. All the cards are out now. The Oreo brand tends to have specialized Oreos come out, depending on what time of year it is. Yeah, I loved their peppermint ones. Yeah, so the peppermint ones are good. good. Some are hits, some are misses. They are, that's exactly right. And, um, like, I think I've had a strawberry one for Valentine's Day. Yeah, it was not good. But I saw at Target that they have carrot cake flavored Oreo. So my first reaction was, ew. Yes. <laughs> because that just sounds so disgusting. <laughs> um, but, you know, for all the carrot cake lovers, you know, yeah, feel free might to be try worth it. trying, yeah. Of course, you know, sometimes you love something and a company totally, you know, misses the mark. Yeah, on the taste. Yeah. But um, hey, you know, it's out there for you and. Give it a um, shot. Yeah. I had um, a pack of peppermint Oreos, Christmas peppermint Oreos. Yeah. Loved them so much, I went back and got a couple more so that I could just eat a peppermint Oreo every now and again. Good idea. They are so good. Do you have some left? I do. Do you really? <laughs> she that's she has them hidden. <laughs> wow. That's I have them hidden, and every now and again, I'll pull one out. Do you have them hidden in different places at home and at work? Just random, like, you know. No. In a pot and a flower or like, like an empty chip bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an empty broccoli bag. That <laughs> way <laughs> like nobody will mess with it. Yeah. No, I don't. I only have one bag left and I keep them in the bag so they're fresh. 
And like we said that March came in like a lamb, it's actually been pretty warm and that's been causing a little bit of havoc on the um, on the plants here. That's right. I even saw a tree starting to go into full bloom. Felt very sorry for it. It's yeah. buddies did it, so obviously they got the message. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, the here in Virginia, the red buds are the first trees to bloom. Um, so they will, and the fact they're turning green now. So, uh, but I noticed out front when I was finally taking down the Christmas lights and the putting the extension cords away, that we have crocuses blooming. We've got yeah. a couple of daffodils blooming. The tulips are already coming up coming out of the up. ground. Yep. Yep. Lots of flowers. Lots of confusion this winter. Yeah. Well, and like so little snow. So sad. We got so gypped. We did. Next year, I hope they make up for it. They. They. The, uh, snowflake, <laughs> the weathers. The snowflake makers that Cole talked about. <laughs> That's right. Jack Frost. Yeah, they snips. Yeah, the snips. Come on, snips. And then the last thing we had is our next episode will actually be a trip report from Disney. Beth and I will be down in Disney starting this uh, coming Thursday, and then we'll be down there for a week. So we're going to go to some special events, including the Flower and Garden Festival um, and some other things. So we, we will actually just do an episode, the two of us, while we're down there, and then we'll pick up with um, Easter episodes after that. So looking forward to all that fun. So Cole and, I, Cole and I are feeling a little jelly about mm-hmm. that but you know Cole's feeling a little sick right now well, okay <laughs> so maybe guy. it's me <laughs> once he's feeling better he'll get there right, right yeah so when I think of going to Disney I think there are often storms brief thunderstorms that come and go and through my research I now understand why there are so many so j- just on that in the past I've had an internship and someone from Florida came up and she was totally weirded out by the fact that Virginia can have days of storms versus Florida where they have like an hour and then it's it. Right. So that's very, so I'm very curious to learn why. Right. A thunderstorm can also be called a lightning storm, a thunder shower, an electrical storm. A boom boom. A boom boom, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> no. <laughs> but if it's you're a little kid, it could be. Well, okay. It's an electrical weather event in which the heavy rain comes together with flashes of lightning, strong winds, and potential hail and tornadoes. Now, as I've been researching, they keep coming up with potential hail and tornadoes. That is by far, like, the least of the thunderstorms. Most storms, by far, do not have hail and tornadoes. True. Thank goodness. (laughs) Thank (laughs) goodness. So, they most often occur during the hot summer days, Because the air in the atmosphere is more unstable in the hot air than in the cold. And an unstable atmosphere is one of the ingredients you have to have in order to have a thunderstorm. So you need moisture to form clouds and rain. Okay, so think about that. In Florida, it's humid like all the time. Yep. There's moisture. Unstable air which is relatively warm air that can rise rapidly. Always hot, right? Or mostly. And then you have the lifts, which are fronts, sea breezes, mountains, and something around Orlando because they have plenty of lifts down there too. And those are the three things needed to form the thunderstorms. They happen in every state, and every thunderstorm has lightning. I did not know that. And thunder 
as most of us know, won't hurt you, but lightning will, and they are always together. There are four different types of thunderstorms. As I was doing this research, a lot of the definitions got incredibly complex fast. So I found a place that seems to pare it down a great deal. So these are the four types. One is single cell storms. These typically last 20 to 30 minutes. And they're also called pulse storms. So pulse storms can produce severe weather elements such as downbursts, hail, and some heavy rainfall, and occasionally weak tornadoes. For the most part, it's just a downpour. So like we see in Florida in the summertime. Right. The multi-cell cluster storms are a group of the single cell storms moving as a single unit with each cell in a different stage of the thunderstorm life cycle. Hmm. So multi-cell storms can produce moderate-sized hail, flash floods, and weak tornadoes. So they can get pretty big if enough of them get together. Now, multi-cell line storms consist of a line of storms with a continuous, well-developed gust front at the leading edge of the line. They're also known as squall lines, and these storms can produce small to moderate-sized hail, occasional flash floods, and weak tornadoes. Then there's supercells. These are thunderstorms with a rotating updraft and can produce strong downbursts, large hail, occasional flash floods, and weak to violent tornadoes. So they're the most intense, the supercells. So those supercells. are the four types? Those were the four types. The singles, the multi-cell, which is a cluster of singles, the multi-cell line, which is a line which has a well-developed gust at the leading edge of the line to form it. And then the supercells, which are the crazy big ones. So I think here, where we live in Virginia, we see the line ones. Because they're often associated with a front, a change in temperature from hot to cold, oh, okay. cold to hot. So we generally see a, the line of thunderstorms. The pop-up ones we can get sometimes in the heat like it's really hot in the summer and humid here but it's not that continuously humid here versus like right houston or uh florida those kind yeah. of places and like we can go we can have days oh, of, right. of rain. rain and sometimes thunder accompanies that right thunder and lightning because now we know lightning always accompanies thunder so now i'm just going to give some different interesting weather facts one and this is Something that you cannot find by researching on the internet is that Sydney and I love thunderstorms. Yes. We love the sound. It's cozy to us. It makes us happy. Uh, I love falling asleep to thunderstorms. Now, that's not a universal feeling. Some people really don't like thunderstorms. And it's hard for me to grasp that, but I know that it's true. Yeah, oftentimes, like, even if it's, like, bleak weather, I tend to like it. Because if it's, like, rainy or whatever, it's still, it's kind of soothing to me. I just want to have, like, a hot cup of tea yeah. and curl up. Yep. If I'm at work, I just have to stick with a hot cup of tea. I can't curl up. Right. But, um, <laughs> but a lot of people, the weather does, like, seem to affect their mood. Mm. And they prefer the sunny weather versus, like, the, the dim, dark weather. Right. So, the intense heat from lightning causes the surrounding air to rapidly expand and create a sonic wave and that is what you hear is thunder. So the thunder occurs because of the lightning. The average temperature of lightning is around 36,000 degrees Fahrenheit which is much hotter than the sun from what I can tell several times over. 
The sound of thunder can be anything from a loud crack to a low rumble, sometimes both in the same thunderstorm. Light travels faster than sound, so we see the lightning before we hear the thunder. The closer you are, the shorter the gap between the lightning and thunder. So the speed of sound is around 767 miles per hour. The speed of light is 669,600,000 miles per hour. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. The speed of light is, it it deserves a shout out. Right. So in (laughs) in essence, when you're looking at... uh, a lightning strike it's basically instantaneous you see it whether it's five miles away or two miles away it's basically the same amount of time it takes uh, you know on a grand scale but that's why there's that the point at which you see a lightning strike we were taught as kids so if you see the lightning you say one mississippi two mississippi you hear the sound that means it's about two miles away at least give you some sense that it's not right on top of me yeah right <laughs> well that's what i remembered too yeah but i have I have come across a couple different things that said you can estimate how many miles away a storm is by counting the number of seconds between the flash of lightning and the clap of thunder, right? That's true. And then you divide the number of seconds by either five or three, depending on which which research you look at. And that is the distance in miles away it is. So they're saying you have to say, so say it was six seconds away, you divide that by... Let's say three. Well... Five or three, right? Yeah. So if it's three, then it's two miles away. Yeah. I wonder what's right. I don't know. It wasn't important enough for me to care. (laughs) But you can go look that up. And you listeners that care can do that too. No, that bugs me. Okay. Sometimes you hear of something called heat lightning, in which you see the lightning but don't hear the thunder. And that's just because the thunder's too far away. Thunder's difficult to hear at distances over 12 miles. Thousands of years ago, I thought this was interesting, philosophers like Aristotle believed that thunder was caused by the collision of clouds, (laughs) which makes sense given what they knew at the time scientifically, but it's just interesting to to think about that now. We we were told that um, God and his angels were bowling. Yes, I've heard that too. (laughs) We were very little. Yeah. (laughs) There are all kinds of interesting things that came up with that. Astrophobia is the fear of thunder and lightning. So for those of you that have astrophobia, I am so sorry. That was a thunderously good thing to research. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we had a booming good time with that, (laughs) As I was thinking about thunderstorms, that's something I think about when it comes to spring. That for us, where we've lived in Pennsylvania and Virginia, Ohio, those kind of places... That the fronts that come through that indicate warmer weather, wet weather that comes with spring, often includes thunderstorms or windy days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so spring to me is that. It's But it's like the flowers that we talked about that are coming up very early this year, the robins. Uh, but also perfect days for flying kites. If you're not along the coast where they have some pretty good um, wind, steady wind, that in inland, you can get some pretty good days for flying kites in the spring. That reminds me of the kids. When the kids were little, we did yeah. that. Yeah. Or if you're Benjamin Franklin, you combine kite flying with thunderstorms. That's right. So Not a I, good idea. No, no. No. <laughs> so when I was a kid, I was famous for wanting to fly kites. So my parents would buy us boys 
uh, kite kits. Of course, they had to buy multiple kites because there were several of us. So they would buy the simple kits where the structure was made from wooden sticks and plastic kite material. Okay. Uh, it came with a kite string that was probably 100 feet or so long, uh, but it did not come with a tail. So we had to make kite tails from strips of cloth that my mom would help us kind of rip and tie. So do any of you know why you need a tail on a kite? Something to say about dive, wind? Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, so the diamond shape is great for lift, lift off and staying up in the air, but it's not good from a stability perspective. The tail of the kite that you're adding has a stabilizing effect on the kite because it's keeping one end down instead of if you don't ah. have that, the kite will actually spin. It, and then it'll, you'll lose control of it while it's spinning. That's interesting. So the kites that we got in those kits were the diamond-shaped kites that require that tail. And at the time, the only other kite shape I had ever heard of was a box kite, which didn't need a tail, but they were much more difficult to assemble, difficult to make kind of thing. I think David made one of those once when we were kids. So the kits came unassembled, so we had to put them together, which meant there was a risk that they would break when we were putting them together, which they sometimes did, which was very sad. Then we would wait for the right day, and we'd go outside. And a right day meant you had to have some wind. So what we did was, there was a lot of fields where we were growing up, so we would just go to a field, we'd let about five feet of string out, and then we would just start to run. Right. With the kite trailing behind us, kind of floating about our height. Yeah. And we would run and run and run. And as you ran, you, tr- you try to like let more and more of the string out with the hope that the, str- the wind would pull the kite higher. Right, an updraft would grab it. Right. Sometimes it worked, and a lot of times it didn't work. It was very Charlie Brownish. <laughs> so um, I wanted to look up kites and um, kite flying because I know today's kites are a lot different than I remember um, our kites as kids. So most people have flown a kite at some time in their lives. Is that true for you guys? Yes, I remember doing that. My brothers and I did that. Yeah, how, we how? didn't, I don't remember assembling them. Oh, they probably did that while you were like doing something else. I don't know. I don't know. But were they the diamond kites with the tail? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, and they were, I'm sure they were very cheap, but they were, yeah, what everyone else had at the yeah. time. Did, was it like Charlie Brown, like, like what dad was saying? Like when you try to get yeah. him up in the air? Yeah, you just started running and, and you, you, Threw it up and ran and hoped that a wind would yeah. grab it. Because the theory is that the wind is, and it's true, the wind is generally stronger higher up. So if you can get it up to the higher layers, it could. It, maybe it could right? get into a breeze or a little gust of wind. Yeah. How about you, Sydney? Do you remember kite flying? Yeah, so um, we did kite flying with you when Cole and I were younger. And um, there's a, when we lived um, in our other. Well, in our previous home, um, there was a big field out um, just a few houses, like, just across the way. And um, I remember we would go and fly kites, and there were, like, honeysuckle there and berries, and we just had a lot of fun. I do remember our kites were a little bit more complex. Yes, they were. Um, Some of them round Mm -hmm. with um, tails. Some of them, like, I, I think I remember we actually had little airplanes they weren't kites, but same kind of theory. You threw them up in the air and, and tried yeah. to see how high they got. Right. Um, but that was a lot of fun, though. I remember maybe it was one where, maybe not in that case, but there's one where it's like it was a circle and you and you had to throw it. I, I forget exactly what it was. But, yeah, it was more, it was more complex. You're talking about the frisbee? Oh, 
The Circle Frisbee? No. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yes, yeah. we had a... Yeah, I remember what you're talking about. It was a... Um, uh, but that wasn't a, it wasn't on a string though, was it? Was it? Might not have been. But yeah, we, I mean, I think we had the traditional, but then we had like different ones. Yeah, most people remember the Charlie Brown comic strips with uh, Charlie Brown or the uh, TV shows where Charlie Brown's trying to fly a kite and he's got the traditional diamond shaped one that's got the long tail. And what always happens with those ones? Well, eventually they either get caught in a tree yeah. or plummet somewhere. Right, they usually get caught in a tree and he has this like, Love hate, well, he has his hate relationship with the tree that always eats his kite. Oh, that's funny. But today's kites, if you choose a, a reputable brand, are much uh, better than uh, the kites we had, that Beth and I had as kids, and even the ones that Sydney and Cole had when they were kids. They're made out of better materials like the ripstop nylon, the um, fiberglass, or carbon spars that hold them together, which means they can stand up to a lot better use and longer um, use. So good design ensures that they are easier to fly as well. So there are more and more a variety of shapes and patterns being added to the market. And all except the cheapest models have the pattern sewn in rather than printed on. So it's like an applique in. So uh, if you haven't flown a lot of kites or your kids are just get, kind of getting into that, here's some thoughts on flying a kite. First, so when thinking about um, different types of kites for novice user basically just the everyday kind of user um, one important thing is that look for single line kites there are something called uh, double line kites where you actually have two different sets of lines that you're helping to do like tricks and things like that uh, but it's best to start with a single line kite rather than those and they still come in the shape of diamond kites those are one of the simplest kites to assemble and fly and they have lots of different colors and patterns and sizes and They'll even do um, themed, like Disney or, you know, different types of um, characters as well. They do need a tail to fly well. And, and nowadays, that's usually supplied um, to you. So it also kind of comes with a sense for how long of a tail you should have. Um, they also have something called Delta Kites. And I think this is a kind of Sydney um, we got when you guys were kids. They're easier to use than diamonds and they're, they make really great first kites. They're triangle-shaped kites um, in many different patterns and, and even um, a lot of different sizes. Some have a wingspan up to 19 feet. Uh, we didn't get that kind. Brief. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's a big yeah, wingspan. Yeah, and the bigger the wingspan, the harder the pull's going to be from the ground. So, obviously, you want to get a smallish one, like right, four to six feet person. in range for for kids, yeah. so you, your kid doesn't fly off and you <laughs> right. don't see them again. <laughs> get them out of a tree somewhere. Yeah. And usually, there's um, only the need to insert a single strut before they're ready to fly. So they're pretty easy to assemble. They don't have tails, but they look better and more stable in higher winds uh, with one of many different types of tails available. So you don't have to have a tail, but it gives them some stability if you're not doing like tricks or anything like that. There's a variation of that called the Easy Flyer Kites. Um, they come with a permanently attached tail, which are perfect for kids and um, most wind conditions as well. Uh, there are still box kites or cellular kites. These have more interesting structures um, and with a good wind can fly well. There are even ones which can revolve in flight, um, which can be pretty cool to see. Um, they need more assembly than the um, previous types I talked about. But some will pop open into kind of a shape. But they will say that they're not... The Deltas and the Easy Flyer Kites are great for uh, easy takeoff. 
there's they're a lot simpler and the with a lot less wind and then the last category are called parafoils or sled kites and these actually rely on the wind to inflate them rather than spars or sticks to keep them their shape so the wind itself is kind of creating the shape which is pretty cool um, wow. all but the smallest sleds usually have very thin flexible spars built into them and the parafoils are entirely soft so some of the sleds still have a little bit of spars in them but not one not the larger spars that the um, previous types had uh, large parafoils or sleds can pull very hard but if you get a smaller one they said that's pretty good for kids too and they pack up very easily because there's no sticks or anything that kind of squish down to very small packing capability uh, their flying is easy they're not as stable as the ones that are the delta kites or the diamond kites so to fly your kites which I, th this, I thought this was interesting different than what i was told <laughs> as a kid it's actually um what you want to do find a nice open space obviously away from buildings or power lines roads or trees and yes trees really do eat kites like in charlie brown uh, even the most experienced flyers fear them so uh, you want to make sure you're away from all different structures. Um, kites do not need a lot of wind. So I was like, really? That's interesting. And it's because of how they're shaped nowadays. Uh, most um, kites are work perfectly well in steady winds of 5 to 12 miles per hour. So if you're on your app, or that's 8 to 20 uh, kilometers per hour. If you're on your app that day, you can see, oh, we've got a pretty steady wind of 5, 6, 7 you should be able to fly your kite um, that day. If the wind is strong enough to blow off your hat, it's probably too strong for kite flying, meaning that it'll pull too hard. Um, so you assemble your kite, you tie the line to it very carefully so your kite doesn't just take off without you. Um, and then this is the part that's different from when I was a kid. You do not run with the kite. <laughs> the, um, the places I saw said this is never necessary. In fact, it makes the kite very unstable. If you have a steady breeze going, uh, most kites will easily launch right from your hand and then you can gradually let out more line as the kite rises. You keep some pull on the line as you do so there's a little, so it stays taut as the kite won't fly without it. So it'll, it'll fall crash to the ground if there isn't some pull on the line. Um, and you can actually make your kite get higher by a series of pulling and letting it go a little bit, pulling and letting it go a little bit, and that's how you can let out more and more line. If the wind doesn't seem to be working in your favor or is very, very light, they suggest having someone hold the kite about 50 feet or more downwind, pull the line tight, and then signal your friend to let go. So they're basically holding it about their head height. And when you um, tell them that they'll let go, at the same time, you're just going to step backwards and pull the kite into the air. So you're not going to run with it. And then you can do the alternating pulling and releasing to um, get it to go higher, higher into the air. So, and once your kite's in the air, it usually stays there as long as you want, as long as the wind persists along the way. Uh, when you take it down, you're just going to wind the line very carefully, back onto the spool to avoid any tangles in the line, pack it away, keep all your spars together, and you're good to go. Yeah, I see a lot of kite flying at, like, the beach. Yeah. Which yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah, there's kite festivals. Um, there's a, a lot of different ways to um, enjoy flying a kite. In parks and activities mm -hmm. like that. Now, kite flying, a little history of it. Um, nobody knows exactly the origin of when kite flying started, but it does point back to China and the Malay 
archipelago two or three thousand years ago. The earliest written accounts of kite flying were from the exploits of the Chinese general Han Sin from the Han Dynasty, which was from 2006 BC to 2020 AD. Uh, it said that he, during one of his military campaigns, used a kite to fly above at a besieged town to calculate the distance his army would have to tunnel underneath the, the town to get under the city wall. And knowing that measurement, his troops surprised their enemies and were victorious. The popularity of kite flying spread from China basically along the trade routes to Korea, to India, and to Japan. Uh, they arrived in India in the 5th century AD. And it's interesting when you look at the history of kite flying, um, there's a lot of uh, military uses for kites and a lot of mystical influences for, for kites. Uh, kites were brought to Japan around the 7th century by Buddhist monks. They were used as magical figures or talisman to avert evil spirits and as invocations for a rich harvest. Well, evil spirits, as we know, they're scared of the most random stuff. Right. Apparently, kites are one of them. Yeah. So, kite flying became very popular in, in Japan in the 1600s. Um, in fact, Japanese people below the samurai class could even fly them. At that time, the um, Edo government, which was in power at the time, tried unsuccessfully to discourage this pastime because, quote, too many people became unmindful of their work. <laughs> they were so busy flying kites, they didn't do the yep, work. Yep. That's funny. Yep. So there's been um, records of people fishing with kites. So in Micronesia, people figured out a way to, uh, using a leaf kite, they could um, bait um, for garf, uh, garfish, basically, they used it like that. In the in Polynesian culture, there were used to be dueling kites, so they would uh, basically fight each other in the air, and the winner would, <laughs> you know, win something. Um, so they had that going on. Obviously, Sydney mentioned Ben Franklin, so research became a bigger part of kites as the interest in weather and weather prediction and lightning and electricity came into being. That didn't really happen until the the time of Ben Franklin and Alexander Wilson started to uh, try to figure out the elements associated with electricity. A lot of experiments were done on weather and weather prediction as well. One of the strangest uses of kite power was in 1822 in the United Kingdom. A schoolmaster there created a carriage. Now, at first I thought he meant baby carriage, but he just meant like a <laughs> horse-drawn carriage to transport people. Oh, okay. Uh, he created a carriage pulled by a pair of arch-top kites. His charvolent was capable of speeds up to 20 miles per hour. The kites were flown in tandem and steered by four independent lines. Since the road toll was based on the number of horses pulling a carriage, the horseless rig was ruled exempt from the road tolls because no animals were used. That's hilarious. <laughs> I can't imagine it was great from a turn perspective, yeah. but I don't, I don't know. I can't imagine it was great from many perspectives. That seems like it's a very... You think you would have thought it would have caught on a lot more. Yeah, yeah if it so would have been a great been. thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, we would, they would have been kite flying all over the yeah. west here, yes. the, our frontier west, so definitely. Yes, exactly. Um, kites have also, like I mentioned, been used a lot militarily, even in more recent times, in the 1900s. It was used in both both of the major world wars. 
either as a way to signal troops, or they even had some kites in the early 1900s that would lift people up to observe at greater distances. That is a crazy yeah. kite. To be I don't know, do because, that. like, you have sky... What, what's that skydiving where it's basically, like, a big, huge kite, but you're holding onto a pole? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I can see that. Yeah. Windsurfing and sky... Yeah, yeah, all those things were based on the the idea and concept of kites. Mm-hmm. The German Navy used it back then, um, one of those man-lifting box kites, to increase their viewing range from the surface cruising submarines. So, you, you like, uh, they just kind of let them loft up there. They could see a little bit further, so... Yeah, so it's kind of interesting to read about kites and, and kind of how they've changed over time. More recently, kites have become very popular in the United States. They, a lot of these different shapes and types, a lot of different advances in trying to figure out how those shapes affect their ability to fly and to do tricks. I don't know if you've seen the trick kites, but they're pretty cool and they're making them much simpler to use. That um, If you're kind of comfortable flying kites, you can get the, the dual line kites to be able to fly pretty safely and and uh, do some pretty cool tricks so now that that's happened china and some of the asian countries are um have reinvigorated their kite flying as well oh, that's funny yeah so it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out if maybe the countries start to have like olympic events in kite flying or you know something something <laughs> crazy like that some kind of um sports related kite related thing that's right that's well that was a lot of good information that's so great. let's go fly a kite sydney that's right. I, know, I kept thinking about Mary Poppins. I know, right? The last that last scene where Mr. Banks goes and flies kites with the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a lot of that um, diamond shaped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up in the air, up in the park. Yeah. So speaking of Japan, <laughs> <laughs> one of the countries that loved kite flying. That's right. What else did they love? They love. Cherry blossom trees. I always think of them as Chinese cherry trees, but they're Japanese cherry trees, huh? Yes. That's interesting. In fact, the, the, they call them um, sakura trees. Cherry blossom trees. Okay. Yeah. So, um, if you are from the United States... That's me. Yes, and me too. <laughs> and mom. Nothing signifies the arrival of spring in the nation's capital, quite like the blooming of the cherry blossom trees... And the three-week-long National Cherry Blossom Festival in D.C. That's so, true. So, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, so usually when I thought of, I think of spring, I think of flowers, I think of new new growth, and I was looking up um, stuff about spring, like bucket lists and things to go to, and, and I mentioned the cherry blossoms. I'm like, oh, that's right, because we have gone for a number of years to um, see the cherry blossoms at the Cherry Blossom Festival. Yeah, around the tidal pool in D.C. That's right. right. Which is right where all the museums are, all the mm-hmm. major kind of touristy sites are. So it's really a, a great place to go because you can see a lot of things. You can take your time around the tidal pool, but you can go see museums and things as well. That's right. So and you're going to need to take your time because there are about a billion people there. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I was actually curious about that. So apparently more than 1.5 million visitors... Descend upon Washington D.C. each year to admire the three thousand plus trees. So, I was gonna. I thought you were gonna say one point five million visitors go the same day we do. Oh, it feels like <laughs> it, right? <laughs> it like, really does. Oh and a lot of brides are there. Yes, for there weddings. Are a lot of weddings. Yes. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it's it's interesting too because when you're there, it's not like the easiest place to be because no. you you have like the sidewalk. 
and then the uh, patch of trees and then another sidewalk but it, the patch of trees is usually it's not an even ground it's not usually not no it's a it's like um it's like an incline yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah so it's yeah not the easiest place to try to find a spot without a person in your picture with you <laughs> right <laughs> yeah you don't want to be that's very difficult yeah so the festival usually runs between march 20th to april 12th uh it's full of events to honor both american and japanese cultures and represents a close bond forged between the two countries that began with the tokyo mayor yukio ozaki's gift of the trees back in 1912 so oh. a little history about that which i actually thought was interesting that is interesting. I didn't know those were, those were gifts from oh, Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I knew that part, but I didn't realize. Okay. So this is um this is interesting. So um although the event took place in 1912, it all started with a request from Eliza Skidmore in 1885. So apparently, she was the first female board member of the National Geographic Society. She approached the U.S. Army superintendent of the Office of Public Buildings and Grounds after returning from her visit from Japan. So apparently she saw the the cherry trees, she loved them, and she asked this army superintendent that these trees be planted along the Potomac River, but her request was ignored. Not really surprising. In 1909, Skidmore decided to take it upon herself to raise the funds needed to purchase the cherry trees and donate them to the city. She wrote a letter to the First Lady, Helen Taft, outlining her plan, and quickly heard back the First Lady was on board. Oh, wow. Days later, a Japanese chemist who was visiting D.C. asked the First Lady if she would accept a donation of 2,000 cherry trees. On December 10th, the trees arrived in Seattle from Japan and started their journey to D.C. They arrived at their final destination on January 6th, However, shortly after their arrival, the Department of Agriculture discovered the trees were infested and diseased, and they were ordered to be destroyed. Oh. Yeah. So, 2,000 trees. Wow. By the time they got there, it did not work out. So, Japan suggested a second donation, and on March 26, 1912, a little over 3,000 cherry trees arrived in D.C. and were planted along the Tidal Basin. So, those are the cherry trees that you see today. And Um, they were healthy and not diseased. That's right. And beautiful, still standing today. Yeah. Um, And I didn't realize this part. The U.S. reciprocated the gesture by gifting flowering dogwood trees to Japan. Oh, that's interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. So apparently Japan also gifted some more trees, cherry blossom trees, to the U.S. Um, Many were planted along the grounds of the Washington Monument. The first cherry blossom festival was held in 1927 and has since expanded. Now the celebration spans four weeks in March and April, and like we said, attracts more than um, 1.5 million people from all over the world. It is a, an incredible sight. It really is. It's just amazing. Yeah, you know, one of the things that in spring, I know it's getting close to um, the spring time frame because on the news during the day, they'll start predicting when the cherry blossoms will peak. Right. And actually, I have information on that. So this year, the current... 2020 peak bloom predictions are from the National Park Service are March 27th through the 30th. And according to Washington Post's Capital Weather Gang, the peak season is March 25th through the 29th. 
And according to NBC4 Storm Team 4, it is March 18th through the 23rd. So essentially, end of March, very early April. Yeah, but even that still has a lot of variance to it. Oh yeah, definitely. Right? It's kind of like trying to predict the peak of uh, fall leaves, right, in an yeah. area. Is that, you know, you're it's around this time frame. All you got to do is take your best shot. It could be rainy that day. It could be... Um, windy, it could have been warm, so they got there early. It could have been cold, so they got there later. You just, you can't guarantee, which is why they run the festival multiple weeks in a row. So right. if you're there, but they're not peaked, you might catch some. I, I remember one year we went, and there was like one tree or two trees oh, that yeah. had um, flowers on them. Yeah, so, so we, like people would just all come by, take turns, taking pictures next those to those trees. trees. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because you really just never know. The last time we went, it had a lot of uh, so flowers. So many. Yeah. And people were packed yeah. against the And you kind of have to wait your turn to you get do. a good picture yeah. spot. But you get one. You just can't expect to, oh, I'm going to have a picnic there. next. Right, it's just too many people to, yeah. to really do that kind yeah. of thing. Unless you would go maybe during the week, workday week. Aren't or as many, as many people. Yeah, because we go on weekends. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but like it says, there are a lot of international people as well. So you see a lot of tourist groups and all kinds of like um, right. those type of things as well. And obviously there's more to the National Cherry Blossom Festival than just the blossoms. Um, apparently there's a pink tie party, which is a fundraiser, the opening ceremony of the festival. You have contemporary performances from American and Japanese artists. Other popular events include the Blossom Kite Festival. What? That's right. The National Cherry Blossom Festival Parade, and and much, much more. So if you're interested, look the events up online. I'm looking up a lot of this information on Washington.org. So, I mean, there, there's a Cherry Blossom Peak Watch and everything. So um, if you're interested, it is great. I would highly recommend for anybody who yeah. hasn't done it to definitely do it at least once. Yeah. We've gone multiple times, and you really get... You really get like a different experience each yeah. time. We usually plan for like a day. Like we'd say, hey, let's go to the, see the blossoms and then we'll go to a museum. Mm-hmm. We'll go or to lunch or dinner. That kind of thing. You have to look ahead as far as where you're going to park because parking is hard in D.C. Right. You can take the metro if you want to. That makes, at least you're parking further away and you're metroing in. Um, so there's a lot of options. I actually forgot that the mall is a really good place to fly your kite. I've seen... Many times as I'm driving around either during the work day or other times people flying kites on the mall because it's a huge, massive area to do that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that sounds fun. It's a, that is a very fun spring festival. Definitely. So our future festivities are right in that time frame of the National Cherry Blossom Festival and the peak season. The first one is on March 23rd. March 23rd is National Puppy Day. March 24th is National Cheesesteak Day. March 25th is National Tolkien Reading Day. March 26th, Epilepsy Awareness Day, also known as Purple Day. March 27th, National Scribble Day. March 28th, National Weed Appreciation Day. Now, this is weeds in your garden. We're supposed to appreciate them? Apparently. Okay. March 29th. Smoke and Mirrors Day. As always, you can follow us on social media on Twitter at Holiday underscore Moons. Um, on Instagram, we are at Holiday Moons. On Facebook, you can find us on our Facebook page or 
Facebook group by searching Holiday Moons in the search bar, and you can contact us at any time at holidaymoons at gmail.com. So for Beth, Randy, and Sydney, happy, happy spring! With tuppence for paper and strings, you can have your own set of wings. With your feet on the ground, you're a bird in flight. With your fist holding tight to the string of your kite. Oh, let's go fly a kite up to the highest height. Let's go fly a kite and send it soaring up through atmosphere up where the air is clear oh let's go fly a kite when you send it flying up there all at once you're lighter than air you can dance on the breeze over houses and trees with your fist holding tight to the string of your kite Oh, oh.